Hey guys, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to let you all know about something that you might find cool. Throughout this podcast, we've talked about or referenced some very cool historical architecture from different parts of the African continent. Maybe you remember us talking about the Ashanti Royal Palace or the Grand Steles of Aksum or the Manjakamiadana Palace of Madagascar and thought, wow, I wish I had, I don't know, a miniature version of that that I could hold in my hands or place on my desk. Well, now you can. In addition to history, I also happen to very much love 3D modeling. And so I made some miniature scale models of these famous African monuments and printed them out, which are now up for sale on the Patreon page. So if you've ever wanted to have your own little piece of African history in your house or on your desk, simply go to patreon.com slash historyofafrica, click on the shop tab, pick whichever building model strikes your fancy, and then fill out an order form. Only available in the US and Canada for now. And now, on to our normal show. In 1838 AD, the Grahamstown Journal, a South African colonial newspaper, published an article about the recent expansion of British colonial rule over parts of the territories of the Nguasa people of South Africa's Eastern Cape. However, in an unexpected twist, the newspaper claimed that the Nguasa, who speak a Bantu language, were not aboriginal to the region at all, but were, to quote the newspaper, usurpers of the whole of the territory between the Kai and Fish rivers. The newspaper claimed that the Nguasa were far from the victims of colonial oppression here at all, but were themselves conquering aggressors who had stolen the land from its earlier, truly aboriginal inhabitants. If anything, they were the true colonizers, right? Now, on a micro scale, this claim can be pretty easily identified as straightforwardly false. Even at the time, there is considerable evidence of contact between the Nguasa and earlier Dutch settlers going back to at least the 17th century AD, and there's some very good archaeological evidence that shows that Nguasa habitation in the area began way, way before that. Basically, if the Nguasa did seize their country through conquest of another group of people, then that conquest happened at least two centuries prior to the publication of the Grahamstown Journal. But it's worth noting that rather than an isolated example of a strange justification of a specific colonial conquest, this Grahamstown Journal article is the first written example of a myth that would become central to the history and identity of South Africa. The myth of empty land. This myth attempted to depict the expansion of white South Africans into the interior of the country as not an act of colonial conquest, but as the intrepid settlement of sparsely populated or, in some cases, entirely uninhabited land. As the idea of Bantu expansion became a more widely known theory among white South African writers, they began to incorporate the migration into pro-apartheid readings of South African history. In their narrative of history, which relied on the empty land myth, South Africa had been originally inhabited by small numbers of the Khoikhoi people, largely pastoral herdsmen and seasonal farmers, as well as the San a hunter-gathering people, neither of whom spoke a Bantu language. At the same time that the Dutch were conquering outwards from their Cape colony, the Bantus were also brutally murdering the Khoikhoi and San and occupying their land. Or at least that's one of the manifestations of the empty land myth, as there are plenty of others as well. Some variations, which are probably the more common version that you hear these days, weigh more heavily on the much later collapse of the Matetpua Paramountsi, subsequent wars between different Nguni peoples and the rest of the Zulu Kingdom, but that's another story for another time. 
Now, the empty land myth has a lot of more subtle problems with it, but it's important first to focus on the elements which are just undeniably and plainly false. Notably, the idea that Bantu speakers were still just beginning to migrate to South Africa by the 17th century is not even close to true. We'll talk about it in more detail later, but while this part of the narrative, the part which is the most blatantly used to justify colonialism in Southern Africa, is easily disprovable, there are some other elements of the story which are a bit more complicated. And then there's the question of whether the arrival of Bantu speakers represented a violent displacement of the pre-Bantu population at all, or if something else entirely was going on. Well, that's a little bit more complicated of a question. And it's the exact one that we're going to dive into today. Hello everyone, and welcome to part two of our mini-series on the historiography of the Bantu expansion and language family. If you haven't checked out our previous episode and you're not super familiar with the idea of the Bantu expansion already, then please take a look at it before you listen to this one, as we're going to huh, expand on a lot of concepts from the last show. Today we'll talk about the transformation of the academic tone towards the Bantu expansion hypothesis, the politics and beliefs of its early critics, later reformers, and its status in contemporary academic circles. Which parts remain widely believed today, while which parts have been largely discarded? Anyways, let's resume where we left off last time, and get on with the show. Harry Johnson's thesis on Bantu origins, the idealistic grandfather of the modern Bantu expansion theory, was far from uncontroversial even when it was first espoused. Johnston, a British ethnologist and colonial administrator, had proposed that all Bantu-speaking peoples of southern and central Africa shared an origin, that they were descended from a group of people near somewhere close to modern Cameroon who had invaded and conquered the whole of the southern half of the continent. The few inhabitants of the land were either massacred or integrated into Bantu society, with a few surviving in smaller numbers in isolated territories, like the Khoikhoi of South Africa or Maasai of Tanzania. Now, at the time when this idea was first getting espoused, Johnston's thesis was criticized mostly by people who had defended the previously dominant theories of Bantu origins, that they had been spread into Africa by some external civilizing race. According to these people, Johnston was giving far too much credit to the intelligence and capability of Southern and Central Africans. Bantu languages have incredibly sophisticated, complex, and interesting grammatical systems, and the idea that these systems were developed by Africans south of the Sahara was outright offensive to the white supremacist thinkers of their day. No, it had to be that some superior race of outsiders taught these systems to the people of South and Central Africa. However, these beliefs did gradually start to fade out of European academia by the start of the 20th century. In addition to white supremacist and highly racist ideas of a dynastic race, the idea of an external origin of Bantu languages also happened to align with the still-present, though fading, reliance on biblical justifications for racialism, such as the supposed connection between Africans and the cursed descendants of Ham in the Bible. See our episode on the Sokoto Khalifat to learn about how the Ham legend impacted European and Middle Eastern views on African history, and why it's not really based on anything in the Bible or the Quran, but rather just a folk etymology. But anyways, if Africans were the descendants of Ham, as many Europeans believed at the time, and Ham was from the Middle East, then Bantu languages, therefore, must have come from the Middle East. But the idea of an external Bantu origin grew increasingly fringe, along with the curse of Ham, throughout the 20th century, 
replaced with, depending on the person, either more progressive ideas of human equality or, in many other cases, newer forms of scientific racism that tried to distance themselves from this pseudo-religious racialism, dumping biblical mistranslations for skull measuring and primitive attempts at genetics. By the end of the 1940s, though, Johnston's Bantu invasion theory had become increasingly ubiquitous as the most credible mainstream alternative to the views of external origins. Throughout the following decade, almost every academic critique of the Bantu expansion theory simply tweaked certain elements of the theory, rather than actively challenging any of its core tenets. Every once in a while, for example, a scholar might challenge, say, the proposed origin location of the Bantu languages, claiming that maybe instead of southern Nigeria or northern Cameroon, that the Bantu languages originated in, say, the Congo Basin or inland Tanzania. Perhaps they would propose that the migration started or concluded slightly earlier or later than previous estimates suggested, but the central premise of the theory, that the Bantus came from within somewhere in South or Central Africa and then spread out through the rest of it over time, remained omnipresent. This would begin to change, however, with the decolonization of Africa. As a growing number of African countries became independent states throughout the mid-20th century, new historians, anthropologists, and other scholarly figures from within African universities began to finally have their own voices heard for the first time in the academic study of their own continent. Countless areas of study in Africa would be forever altered by the growing inclusion of African voices, including the introduction of one figure who would propose some pretty radical alterations to the theory of Bantu expansion. In 1976, a young Ugandan historian at Makerere University by the name of Samweri Luanga Lunigo published an article in the journal Current Anthropology. The article, entitled The Bantu Problem Reconsidered, approached the Bantu expansion from a new perspective. Luanga Lunigo argued that a fundamental flaw of the Bantu expansion model was that it viewed the expansion of Bantu speakers as a singular, unified trend. Sure, pretty much every theorist, including Johnson himself, had proposed that this trend took place with incredible gradualness, lasting for thousands of years, but they still ultimately analyzed the Bantu migration as if it had a capital B, a singular gradual phenomenon and historical trend. However, citing then-recently emerging archaeological data, Luanga Lunigo would dispute this idea, as well as the idea of a Bantu migration into Central Africa, entirely. According to Luanga Lunigo's counter-hypothesis, the ancestors of the Bantu speakers have been living in Central Africa since at least the Pleistocene. Rather, the only major Bantu migration that took place was the movement of these people slightly further south, into the furthest southern reaches of South Africa, where they then displaced or integrated the local Khoikhoi population. Basically, if a Bantu migration did happen, it happened several tens of thousands of years ago, not just a couple millennia ago, as the mainstream hypothesis claimed. Furthermore, the ancestors of the Bantu language were not confined to one small part of the continent, and then expanded rapidly throughout the rest. Rather, even in this early age, their ancestors were present throughout much of this area, and the geographic expansion that did occur was quite minor. Now, despite or perhaps because of the electric and provocative nature of Luanga Lunigo's claims, his divergent retelling of the Bantu expansion remained on the academic backburner for quite some time. 
It only began to gain major attention following Luanga Lunigo's contribution to the Bantu expansion section of the UNESCO African History Series. Funnily enough, he actually co-authored that section of the UNESCO history with a fellow academic who strongly supported a more orthodox view of the Bantu expansion in their article. And it definitely has that group project by two people who really disagree with each other vibes to it. However, the more you read into Luanga Lunigo's theory, there may have been another reason as to why it never gained much mainstream traction. See, for such a radical alteration, you'd have expected him to bring some pretty considerable evidence, right? I mentioned that he cited archaeological evidence in his paper, but, well, what was his evidence? And this is when it starts to become clear why it never gained much traction. Luanga Lunigo has a very aggressive and ironic reliance on scientific racism in his arguments. See, Luanga Lunigo, throughout his article, does this weird thing where he equates the spread of Bantu languages with what he calls, quote, Negroid peoples, mirroring the racialization of Bantu linguistics seen in apartheid South Africa around the same time, where Bantu was equated with Black African. To quote from the editorial he included in the UNESCO history, quote, the evidence indicates that peoples of the Negroid physical type occupied Sub-Saharan Africa from the Middle Stone Age, and that it was from this Negroid stock that these speakers of Bantu languages emerged. It is possible that Bantu languages developed through the interaction of various early Negro communities, borrowing from one another and in this way helping to develop new Bantu languages from the previous Negro language amalgams. Luanga Lunigo's primary, and when you read through the article, really his sole source of evidence for his claim, are skeletons of what he calls the African physical type in Southern Africa at an early period. He therefore asserts, without any explanation as to why, that these people must have certainly been the ancestors of modern Bantu language speakers. Now, I won't get into this too much because it will end up taking up the whole episode, but the idea of the existence of biologically distinct races of people has become essentially non-existent in mainstream academia, and for good reason. Today, it's widely accepted in pretty much every field of study that while regional variation in people's appearance and their features do exist, that these variations are pretty dang small in the grand scheme of things, and that the categories of race used today are largely arbitrary. For example, it's quite strange that we use a combination of skin tone and geographic origin for identifying people's race, as opposed to, say, equally arbitrary genetic features, such as people's ability to process lactose, or their ability to taste cilantro, or resist malaria infections. Those are all genetic features, of which the frequency varies quite considerably over different geographic locations. But for arbitrary reasons, we have decided to settle on skin tone as the main arbiter of race. For this reason, the extent to which you can identify quote-unquote race in skeletons is also controversial. Yes, it is true that forensic scientists can identify certain small nuances in bone structure that are more common in certain parts of the world than in others, and use them to make educated predictions about the regional origins of a person's ancestry. However, even among modern people, these estimates are not as precise as you might think. Many of the features forensic scientists use to estimate regional ancestry are not ubiquitous within the population of that region, and are also not exclusive to that region. And these are problems that we face with people who are around now. Well, these problems become far more severe when you're examining remains from our ancient or prehistoric past. 
To give you a sense of what I'm talking about, let me tell you about probably the most famous example of a case which strongly refuted the usefulness of identifying the ancestry of ancient humans through skeletal structure, the so-called Kennewick Man debate. In this archaeological controversy, a 9,000-year-old body of a man was discovered in a small town in the USA. Forensic anthropologists were quick to note that the skeleton didn't have many of the features associated with Native Americans, but instead had more motifs in the bone structure associated with Europeans and Polynesian people. And when you compare to Native American, European, and Polynesian people of today, yeah, that's fairly true. However, in 2013, a study using new genetic methods discovered that, in fact, the closest living descendants of the man were the Native American population of Kennewick. It turned out that human appearances can change a lot over 9,000 years, and that skeletal features are actually a terrible means of linking ancient and modern people. This idea is obviously relevant when examining Luanga Lunigo's thesis. While yes, the ancient skeletal remains he cited do share a lot of features with modern Central and South Africans, it doesn't really tell us whether or not they have an ancestral relationship. But of course, even if it did, this wouldn't mean very much. Bantu is a linguistic category, and bone structures don't talk. Many non-Bantu-speaking people in the region, like the Maasai or Hadza people of Tanzania, also have many people with these skeletal features. Luanga Lunigo's insistence on equating Bantu-speaking people with the idea of a quote-unquote black race is an enormous flaw with his theory, and a major reason why it retains so little academic support today. But on the other hand, I really don't want to come across like I'm taking a dump on Luanga Lunigo's ideas. That couldn't be farther from the case. While his theory as a whole did have problems, he did end up introducing some ideas which would have more staying power, and feature in mainstream scholarship on the issue to this day. For example, the idea that the Bantu expansion was not a singular gradual event, but rather may have resembled two or more chronologically distinct waves, one into Central Africa that happened much earlier, and one that happened into South Africa quite a bit later, has been largely vindicated. Luanga Lunigo's skepticism ultimately highlighted many of the weaknesses of the Bantu expansion theory as it stood at the time, and encouraged many new scholars to weigh in. While newer analysis has generally strengthened the idea that there was some kind of Bantu expansion at some point, and the overwhelming majority of scholarly opinion within African academia and elsewhere accepts this notion, Luanga Lunigo still deserves a great deal of credit for his contributions in pointing out some of the holes in previous iterations of the theory. After all, it was because of his criticism that many of these holes would be patched by later thinkers. However, while the zeitgeist generally leaned towards a Bantu migration being a thing that happened, there's been one major part of this story which has largely gone undiscussed. Why were the ancestors of Bantu-speaking peoples so successful in spreading their linguistic legacy across the southern half of the continent? Theorists had long speculated on why or how the Bantu expansion had happened, but for a long time this was little more than speculation. Theories ranged from Bantu speakers being earlier to adopt settled agriculture than their southern neighbors, to the spread of iron smelting technology, or any other number of alternative explanations. But there's one piece of evidence, a pretty major one, that we haven't discussed yet here. So far, we've examined the arguments based on religious, linguistic, and forensic evidence, but as genetic sampling techniques have improved in recent decades, 
a wealth of formerly untapped genetic evidence might finally illuminate some of the mysteries of the spread of Bantu languages. However, while genetic evidence would provide some clarity to the process of Bantu expansion, it would also open up new questions and reveal a story that was perhaps far more complex than previously imaginable. There have been dozens of genetic anthropology studies regarding Bantu expansion, far too many to go over here. But one theme that seemingly ties them all together is that the expansion took very different forms over time and space. One study performed in the Cabinda exclave of Angola in 2005 showed that the expansion of Bantu languages in the region resembled a complete demographic replacement of the pre-Bantu population. Genetic markers obtained from older remains were entirely absent from the present-day population. Now, this could evidence any number of things. Perhaps it represents a violent displacement, that the ancestors of Bantu speakers killed the previous inhabitants and took their land, a tale as old as time. But that's assuming a lot. It could also represent non-violent displacement, that proto-Bantu people moved into the land and, rather than driving out the previous inhabitants, but simply competed with them for resources enough to the point where the previous inhabitants simply chose to leave. Perhaps, since the pre-Bantu peoples were likely nomadic hunter-gatherers, the Bantu population first moved into the area when the previous population had been migrating, when they were gone somewhere else. And when they returned, they discovered that this land was less useful than they remembered and moved on. However, other Bantu-speaking regions tell a very different story. A team of four South African researchers performed genomic surveys on various Bantu-speaking people in the country. Throughout South Africa, they found that the vast majority of Bantu speakers had at least some degree of mixed heritage with pre-Bantu populations. And in an incredibly crucial detail, there was a pretty balanced degree of pre-Bantu DNA on both the X and Y chromosomes indicating that both men and women from pre-Bantu groups integrated into Bantu societies. However, this trend was not universally the same. Many other Bantu-speaking regions showcase strong admixture, but almost entirely on the X chromosome, showing that only pre-Bantu women were integrated into their societies, perhaps indicating that they had been taken as prizes of war. In a few cases, the opposite is true with some Bantu-speaking people showing higher levels of Y-chromosome DNA from pre-Bantu speakers, indicating that a group of men were integrated into a group of Bantu speakers at some point. Meanwhile, in a few cases, Bantu-speaking populations are almost genetically identical to non-Bantu-speaking neighbors, meaning that in their case, the adoption of a Bantu language was an aspect of cultural diffusion, not a form of demographic replacement in any capacity. Perhaps the biggest takeaway from all this genetic research is that, regarding the Bantu expansion, it's a trend that took place over thousands of years, so of course it cannot be easily summarized in a particular way. Millions of people across countless generations lived their lives, entirely unaware that scientists and historians in a far future that they would find completely unimaginable would be discussing them as mere cogs in arguably the most significant migratory event in human history. While we can point to macro-historical trends, each of the individual people involved had their own lives, stories, and personality. Trying to describe an event with this many moving people and active participants as good or evil or violent or peaceful is impossible. When it comes to the story of research on the Bantu expansion, 
There is no clean way to wrap up, as there is no endpoint. Highly skilled scholars in linguistics, genetics, forensics, climatology, nutrition, geography, cultural anthropology, history, and many, many other fields continue to study the expansion to this day. They continue to develop new ideas on how the Bantu expansion took place, why Bantu speakers are so successful in spreading across such an enormous territory of land, and how it impacted later periods of South and Central African history. Perhaps the most important group currently working to procure new knowledge on the Bantu expansion is Bantu First, an international and interdisciplinary group project, including some of the biggest names in African historical and scientific research. The group continues to produce valuable new research to this day. In particular, the group recently produced excellent research on the role that climate trends played in the Bantu expansion, something that, for the sake of time, I just wasn't able to bring up here. It turns out that Bantu-speaking people had long established themselves in the rainforest of Central Africa, and that most migrations had ceased around the 700s BC. However, in the coming centuries, an environmental shift occurred, with the rainforest of the region thinning out. The Bantu-speaking population, sometimes reliant on these forest resources to survive, migrated further south, beginning the second major wave of Bantu migration. This second wave concluded, depending on your estimate, between 100 to 600 AD, with the settlement of Bantu speakers along parts of the southern coast of South Africa. Many questions still remain about the nature of the Bantu migration, some of which will still remain hotly debated even among the most capable scholars of the period. And it's no surprise why. In a sense, the questions of the Bantu expansion are mere stand-ins for deeper questions about humanity. What is the concept of culture? How does it spread? And how does viewing the distant past through a modern take on culture and nationality lead us to faulty assumptions? Even in our increasingly globalized world, it is still easy to slip into the error of viewing the world of today with cultures being confined to widely agreed-upon geographic borders, as being surely how people organize themselves in the distant past. However, studying the Bantu migration reminds us of a setting where that wasn't the case, when nomadic communities moved freely, home to home, and when saddled agriculturalists weren't afraid to pack up and move into unknown lands if their fortunes weren't up to expectations. Which brings us back around to the theme I've been not so subtly hinting at throughout this miniseries. The question of indigeneity. Of course, it's no secret that the idea of the Bantu expansion has often been levied as a justification of colonial conquest. We discussed one incarnation of this idea in the empty land myth, but that truly only scratches the surface. More generally, apologists for colonial conquest leverage the Bantu expansion to argue that Bantu-speaking peoples are supposedly hypocritical for advocating against the subjugation of their nations. After all, their ancestors too had taken land from previous inhabitants through violence. This talking point is especially prevalent among the disappointingly large communities of apologists for apartheid states, namely those that existed in South Africa and Zimbabwe. However, I think this argument is pretty absurd at face value, regardless of what the Bantu expansion looked like when it happened. Disregarding the fact that, as we mentioned earlier, the Bantu expansion was far from universally a trend of violent conquest, it's, more importantly, entirely irrelevant. The Bantu expansion took place thousands of years ago, and basically every other part of the world, too, 
has experienced migrations and demographic changes during that time span. This same line of reasoning can be applied to every other country on Earth without exception. If you think that your country is an exception, you are wrong. Claiming that this ordinary part of history, that migrations, somehow justify or softens human suffering and oppression that happened within our lifetimes is just... odd. The Bantu expansion is one of the most interesting occurrences in human history, the root of one of the most fascinating and ongoing topics of research. To use this beautiful area of study as a cheap battering ram in support of such a noxious cause is just... sad. If anything, if there's one thing that unites all of us on this planet, from Africa to Eurasia, to Australia, to the Americas, it's that people have moved into the area over time and changed things. But in our daily life, it's not these ancient paths of migration that dictate how we should act. Rather, it's our own moral imperatives to treat others well right now. Thank you for joining me on this journey through the complex web of changing narratives regarding the Bantu expansion. Sorry if I sounded a little bit preachy at the end, but I thought some preachiness was needed for an episode with this much political baggage attached to it. Anyways, this episode was brought to life by our supporters on Patreon. We hit our supporters goal at the end of this season, so the Patreon supporters got to collectively choose the topic of this little post-season miniseries. I think they chose a, uh, a real doozy when they picked this one, as though it was quite short compared to last time, it was by its nature very research intensive. So I really hope that all the hard work paid off and that you all enjoyed. Thanks for joining me and I hope you look forward to our next season coming up as we head to the northern sands of the Sahara to learn about the Garamantes, a civilization which transformed the desert into a paradise. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like our show, then we would greatly appreciate if you could help support the show and our project of freely available online history education. You can do this by supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, or by sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy learning about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofagbamie, Dimitri, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sevelavie, Pascal Mococha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabudike, Sheuna Laurentimain, Kwajo Manqua, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badu, Rassan Virgiani, Niti, Kitty, Tariq Beetleman, and Calvin Jayanoris, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.